Hello, and welcome to the IQT Podcast. I'm Dylan George, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Caitlin Rivers, as a co-host for a special BNEC series on outbreak analytics and forecasting. You may be asking yourself, what is outbreak analytics and forecasting? Well, Caitlin and I will explore the topic with you. In this series, we will investigate what it is, how it has been used to help with pandemic response efforts, and what we need to improve these capabilities. Along the way, we will chat with a range of special guests who have developed or used advanced analytics for decision-making during outbreaks. These guests include world-class modelers that have worked to help understand pandemics and people who have been leading responses. We'll also talk with people working on technologies that could be useful for collecting, cleaning, aggregating, and analyzing data, the data that are needed for outbreak analytics and forecasting. So I think it'll be a fun series and we're excited about it and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Dylan George. I'm a VP at Be Next, which is the biodefense initiative from IQT focused on preparing for and mitigating biological threats that impact national security. I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Dr. Caitlin Rivers, assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and the Center of Health Security. Today, we're joined on the podcast by a longtime leader in epidemiology and infectious disease modeling, Mark Lipsitch. I've known Mark for many years. He's a valued colleague, and I've had the good fortune to call him a friend. Uh, Mark is a professor in the departments of epidemiology and immunology and infectious diseases at Harvard University. He also directs the Center for Communicable Diseases and Dynamics, a powerhouse of disease modelers. Uh, Mark has, has had an impressive array of research interests over the years, Uh, But of particular relevance to our discussions today is his long history of supporting the federal government during public health emergencies. His group was one of the first to produce estimates of the reproduction number of SARS, the original pandemic coronavirus. In 2009, during the H1N1 influenza pandemic, he served on the Presidential Council of Advisors on Science and Technology and served as an external advisor to the CDC in the United States. And more recently, Mark and colleagues contributed modeling estimates to the White House Corona Task Force, some of which has uh, have been highlighted in early press briefings. Mark, as a longtime leader in the field, we are very grateful that you've been able to take some time to spend with us today. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. So Mark, just to get started, I think we'd like to hear a little bit about yourself. What's your background? How did you get into modeling? And how does that fit into your broader epidemiological portfolio of research? Sure. So I got into science really just at the end of college with a short stint of a couple summers at the Santa Fe Institute and got interested in all the big ideas uh, that that were going on there. Um, And that led me to uh, a year after college start a doctoral degree at Oxford University in zoology. But the zoology department there was a um, really an evolutionary biology and mathematical biology department to a large degree. And so I started studying pathogens uh, and their evolution there in a pretty theoretical sense. And in the last 20 plus years since then, uh, I've sort of been moving more and more into applied areas of uh, pathogen population biology, uh, which is maybe another word for infectious disease epidemiology with a bit more of an evolutionary spin. And, uh, and so I keep an interest in kind of abstract questions, but especially ones that can be applied to understanding public health and how pathogen populations change and affect us. 
um, but uh, but also uh, a more direct uh, sort of pandemic preparedness interest uh, in trying to find ways to analyze data, make sense of data, usually very imperfect data in pandemics, um, figure out ways to better test vaccines in emergencies, gotten very interested in this sort of interaction with ethics, between ethics and public health, quantitative public health, trying to understand how we can uh, design better trials that are both ethically appropriate and, uh, and uh, efficient. And of course, COVID came along in, in January for most of us uh, in the United States. Um, and it took a few weeks before we decided to, to really uh, begin working in earnest, but we did so as a group uh, at the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. Uh, and that has been the life, <laughs> the weeks and weekends of uh, about three dozen of us for uh, about half a year now. So you, you mentioned that you did your doctoral work at Oxford, and you actually studied with Bob May. And for those that aren't fully aware, that's essentially like disease modeling royalty. Bob May and Roy Anderson wrote what I refer to as the disease modeling Bible, so to speak. It's a, it's a book called The Infectious Diseases of Humans, Dynamics, and Control. And I spent a lot of time with that book as a graduate student. So it's a, so you're the perfect person to ask about data and analytics and how they've been helpful in responses. How would you describe the value proposition for disease modeling, in particular for outbreak responses? I think there are a few different ways that disease modeling makes a, a big difference. And I would classify it really as disease modeling and analytics of infectious disease data, because I think the modeling has to stay tied very closely to data. Not always dependent only on the data, but it needs to be constrained by the data, obviously. So I think one way that we can use disease modeling is to sort of um, consider what scenarios might be possible. Um, and in fact, somewhat quite a bit to my surprise, I think maybe the, the at least from what I understand now, the most influential work that, that our group has done was very, very early on in this pandemic to make a little, very simple model that just said if there were a few introductions into the United States uh, in January or February, what might be the consequences? And what's important about that is that the consequences might in different places be nothing. They might all fizzle and nothing would happen. And in other places might be tens of thousands of cases or more in a few months. Um, and at the time that seemed scientifically sort of obvious because that's something we all know in our field um, and sort of maybe helpful to somebody but wasn't clear to me. But I think what, what that showed was that just illustrating that what you see and what's real might be quite different. In other words, there might be hidden spread that we're not observing and absence of a problem that we can perceive doesn't mean absence of a problem. That I think was one of the more important things that we've been able to do during this uh, epidemic. And we repeated variants on that in for other countries and, and so forth. So one thing is to just say what can happen in an outbreak to expand the range of planning scenarios for decision makers. A second thing that's related to that is that disease modeling can help you to uh, evaluate how interventions might work. So in a way, what disease models are is they're machines for turning what we know and what we think we know about individual level effects, how we get infected, how many uh, 
viruses we shed, how many contacts we have, and scale that up to the next level, to the level of populations, and say, if you think that this is a virus that has these characteristics in this population, then the population level effects will be such and such. There'll be this much spread, and these kinds of interventions might be effective. So one of the mainstays of our field is saying, uh, is trying to understand in a quantitative way, how might this intervention, say mask wearing, or that intervention, say uh, closure of schools, affect the, the course of a pandemic. Um, and often because the data are limited as they are on both of those questions right now, uh, we can't say precisely the answer, but we can sometimes make a comparison between different interventions or different intensities of interventions. And then I think the third and probably most overlooked part of what, what disease modeling can do is it, it's a way of thinking about data. Um, and so people uh, like Simon Cochenet in France and, and England at different times, um, people like Jaco Wallinga, people, other people, uh, and we've tried to do some of this kind of work as well, have really used infectious disease models, Ben Cooper in, in Oxford, to, um, to understand what data say more completely. For example, uh, to understand that when you see a difference between uh, two different time periods, that might be a difference because the intervention that was done worked, or it might be a difference due purely to chance, and, and the statistics of that are different for infectious diseases. Um, another, another thing is uh, to disentangle household versus community spread, which are very important policy for policy decisions. And those, those are very subtle statistical questions, but if you think about them uh, in an infectious disease modeling framework, you have uh, a big advantage over thinking about them in sort of classic uh, chronic disease epidemiology ways. Yeah, no, I think that those are three great areas. I mean, what can happen in an outbreak or how to describe and characterize the outbreak, what interventions might work, and then I love the way that you described it as way, ways of thinking about data and putting data at the central kind of node of thinking about this as well is that, you know, we're only as good as the data that we have and we can only infer as much as the quantity and quality of data will allow. <clears throat> I hear you touch on this a little bit too, but it would be great to hear more about how the field has changed over time. You've been involved in a lot of responses over the last 10, 20 years and how have you seen the field really evolve? Well, I think we have, built tools that become useful uh, repeatedly. So in 2003, um, the most important scientific contribution during the SARS epidemic, in my opinion, was by Jaco Mollinga and Peter Tunis, who, who invented a way of estimating as an epidemic unfolds, how many people are getting infected by each case each day, uh, sorry, by each case uh, infected on one day or on the next day or on the next day, a sort of real time reproduction number. And um, that has evolved and others uh, have invented new ways of doing it that are uh, related but, but different. Um, and that uh, a variant of that indicator is now on dashboards around the world, um, uh, both government dashboards and public, publicly available dashboards. Um, and there's an ongoing discussion about how to do it best and what it means exactly and all of that. But, but we have those tools that we didn't have before. So I think progress is, is a big part of the story that we just are technologically better 
And it doesn't always mean bigger computers, although that's part of the technological improvement. It also means conceptually better ways of analyzing data. Uh, and that might be the best example of the sort of 20 year arc that I can think of. Um, I think also the field has expanded in terms of the number of people. Uh, it was, and the number of countries where it's a serious pursuit. So in the United States, 20 years ago, uh, almost everybody who had, uh, who worked in this field had an almost direct tie to the UK or the Netherlands or one of the other powerhouses of infectious disease modeling. And now we sort of all have academic grandchildren. <laughs> so I was one of those people who had a, uh, a direct tie. Um, but now we have uh, maybe even academic great-grandchildren who are, um, who are uh, more homegrown, I guess. And just the numbers are different. The United States is a place with a real capacity. And that's been a deliberate government policy, in fact, built up by, uh, I would argue, three important pillars, one from the NIH called MIDAS, um, a network that you both know very well, one uh, from also the NIH and the Department of Homeland Security called RAPID, which uh, had, took a sort of different model. And then uh, a smaller but important pillar is a summer school at the University of Washington called SysMid that has educated a lot of uh, the current crop of the top people in the field um, in the most advanced methods. And that's hard to do because there isn't enough demand in one university usually for a class on the most uh, cutting edge work, but, but by aggregating people, uh, that's been a very good model. Those three, uh, at least two of those three are uh, in the past now, or more or less in the past. Um, and so I think the building phase is uh, is coming to an end in the United States and that we uh, we are at risk of losing if we don't continue to invest because um, it's not that we need to expand capacity forever, but we need to maintain the capacity that's been built or it's going to be a bit of a waste and um, and we will be in a much worse position five years from now. I think this pandemic came at perhaps what what could turn out if we don't intervene to be the height of capacity in the United States. Um, in modeling. And I think, uh, I mean, that hasn't been used very well by our federal government response, but that's a different issue. Um, the, our ability to respond is, it is not going to go up further unless we decide to make it do so. Wholeheartedly agree that we're on the verge of losing a lot of important training pipelines, particularly since I was, I think I was among the last to go through the MIDAS program in its original instantiation. So that's a really important point. Now, so the science and technology has advanced a lot, but how have you seen the integration into public health change or have you? Are we better now at making use of these skills and insights or is there still more development that's needed? I think globally we are. Um, I think many countries in the world now see this as, uh, see modeling and, and sort of infectious disease data analysis as a broad field as something they need to be able to do in-house uh, as governments. Globally, there is, uh, I think, recognition that this is a field that needs to be part of government discourse. Um, in the United States, I think that was the, the positive trend, uh, kind of slow, frankly. Um, I think Midas helped to catalyze that to some degree. Um, and, uh, and it was beginning to work but Midas has sort of uh, stepped down from that role. Um, and 
I think, separate from that and quite independent of, of the scientific decisions that were made for not very political reasons, just for scientific priority reasons. I think there's been um, a remarkable uh, decision by, by essentially the executive branch to um, sideline public health expertise in favor of um, uh, other considerations that are not science and not public health. And that's been essentially the heart of the problem why why we are the world leader uh, in all the things you don't want to be the world leader in in COVID nineteen. You know, just a just a foot stomp though too. It's like this whole idea of you know, there's lots of discussion about concern about vaccine development being done offshore and whether or not the United States will be able to take advantage of of or have access to vaccine development. You, you've highlighted very well that the same problem exists if we don't continue to, to develop the capabilities of, of people here in the United States to actually do these kinds of analytics to help us understand these very challenging data for outbreaks. We're not going to have uh, those capacities to remain in the United States. And so we need to keep continue to invest in those. And so it's, it's, it's a very similar discussion as to what we're having with um, vaccines but for data and analytics, and we need that here. Could you explain a little bit though too, because you've been involved in so many different outbreaks, you know, back to 2003 to, to today. And I, I remember post 2009 H1N1 influenza pandemic, you convened a big group of people at Harvard to talk about lessons learned and some wonderful papers came out of that as well. But how have you gotten involved in uh, the, the, the responses and how does the the bat signal go up? You know, you, you had mentioned you know you had deliberated within your group about how to get involved with COVID. What what's that dynamic? Can you explain a little bit more about that to our listeners? Sure, it's it's really different from outbreak to outbreak or pandemic to pandemic. Uh, and unfortunately, I think it's been a bit of backsliding. So in 2003, there weren't that many groups really actively engaged with SARS. Uh, I remember the meeting at the WHO with Yako Wallingo's group and the Imperial College group and our group. Uh, and we were all supposed to present our, our work. And uh, I don't know if they were nervous. I was certainly nervous that we were going to say the reproduction number is three and they were going to say, you know, 10 and 10 or 1.2 and 1.2, which was sort of, this was sort of the thing we were trying to estimate. Um, and uh, in fact, what we all said was three, three and three. So that was uh, a little sweat unnecessarily. <laughs> Uh, or unnecessary sweat, but uh, it was sort of a, a very small group of group of groups. Um, and each of us, I think, engaged with it sort of independently and as a as a just a decision of something we wanted to work on. Um, in 2009, I'd say we were kind of at the height of the more coordinated approach. Um, and I would put Midas, credit Midas and the, the NIH um, administrators who were running it at the time with um, with making that happen and with bringing groups together. Um, we were all still doing our own approaches, modeling approaches, which I think is good. You don't want premature convergence and there are a lot of questions. And, and I think um, it wasn't that they tried to do top-down management, but they did manage to coordinate, and this was Irene X, and specifically at the NIH, um, who, who tried to coordinate so that uh, different federal agencies like BARDA and uh, CDC and others got answers to the questions as best they could be provided by modeling groups. They got modeling support. 
Um, to some degree that was done bilaterally. So I was asked just by CDC very, very early on to come down for a week uh, and sort of work with them. Uh, and then again by New York City uh, for a shorter period for just a day, uh, but for a sort of long, long-term interaction that started with a day of a visit. Um, it's a lot easier to do that when people can move around. At this point, this is much, much more challenging. But, um, but nothing was perfect. But there was a coordinated effort to find the big questions, make sure somebody uh, qualified, hopefully more than one group qualified, was working on it, um, and provide timely advice. Um, and then I would say the the good thing about 2020 is that the groups themselves have been very good at self-organizing and uh, and communicating with one another, um, subject to the incredible time constraints we're all under. But, uh, but the bad thing is that because in this country, at least, there's been no central pull from the federal government for, uh, for advice, um, and in fact, there's been cherry picking of evidence and, and favoritism towards groups that say things are okay, which, is, uh, which they aren't. Uh, and, and all sorts of perversities coming directly from the White House. Um, the, we were, we're back to self-organizing. Um, and very interestingly, the governors, um, individual governors and individual state and local and city health departments and county health departments um, have been the drivers of a lot of modeling work because there's no central um, activity. So. Just as a almost random example, we have a, a um, student in our group who's working just with Santa Clara County, California, um, which is where, near where she's from, and uh, and something she wanted to do. But you know, it's a little bizarre to have different modeling groups working with different counties, uh, pretty much uncoordinated with each other. Uh, yeah. Completely agree. It's like the, having um, those that are lucky enough to have connections to modelers or have excellent modelers in their backyard or data scientists are able to benefit from it. Those that aren't lose out. And I, you know, it's inherently one of the other, um, it's not one of the biggest inequities associated with COVID-19 by a long shot, but it definitely demonstrates that we need to have a national strategy. We need to have a coordination to make sure that everyone can take advantage of these, of these data and these, yeah. and these advances. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just an inequity. It's an inefficiency in this case. I mean, it's both, it's even more inefficient maybe than it is inequitable. So it's, yeah, it's just stupid. <laughs> Agreed. What would you like to see it organized aspirationally? What, what, what do you think would work best to actually connect decision makers to the groups that do this well? Um, well, we've talked about this a lot in the past and I think, I think that, there needs to be some sort of federal entity, uh, and there's, I think, arguments on various sides about what that entity should be, that has strong technical capacity and has is led by someone with uh, with real expertise in the field, and has multiple sort of more junior level people who who are both active in the field and can understand what others are doing in the field. And then my preferred model would be that something like what I think works very well in England and in the Netherlands and in um, Hong Kong uh, and perhaps other places, um, which is to have academic modelers who 
from a fairly early training stage, maybe even from doctoral studies or, or postdocs, are part-time in a modeling agency and part-time in a university. Um, and I think that hybrid model is very valuable because the, the people who are full-time in government have a set of timescales and questions that they are sort of obliged to meet. They have to kind of give answers in a day or two sometimes to very hard questions uh, with whatever evidence they can muster. And the people in universities uh, are often on a very different time scale of a year or, 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 or many months to, to finish a project. And, um, and I think you really want interplay between those kinds of people because if you're responding to daily queries about what is the, what is the best policy for this epidemic, you cannot also be developing cutting edge methods. Nobody has that amount of brain space. And in fact, people who are good at each of those are probably often different. Like I would be terrible at, uh, at sort of daily response. I would, I would decompensate quickly and, and find a new job. Um, but, and temperamentally, it's not what I would want to do, even if I was good at it. So, um, and on the other hand, you have to have people who are good at that. Um, and so I think a, a sort of hybrid model where you, where you get those people in communication and when you have, where you have some bridges, the postdocs or the, or the other people um, to, to be part-time at each place and bring good questions to the academics and bring academic insights and, and approaches to the, and sort of new methods to the, um, to the government agency is to me kind of important, an important aspect of that. Yeah, it, the way I would describe that in a simplistic way as well is it's kind of like a science brain versus an engineering brain. We, and we need to have all of them involved to, to move the, to advance the state of the art of the modeling, as you've kind of given a, a really lovely overview of kind of like the arc of where we've come from being able to, to develop new tr um, techniques to actually describe and quantify r not to the point we are right now where, you know, it's like my sister who's not an epidemiologist at all, but is can hold forth extemporaneously on the value of r not and what it means and what it doesn't mean to this idea of having engineer brains involved. You need people that want to actually build the quote unquote tools or be able to actually make the machine run versus developing the new kinds of techniques for the machine. Completely agree with you on, on that component. One, one thing I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on though too, is this um, how to communicate results. Uh, from some of the the analytics and some of the uh, modeling results to decision makers so that they can understand the implement implementations or the, the and how to actually take action from them I mean because I think that this is one area where it's I think it's been really challenging and um, I think some modelers do it much better than others and I think you're one of those that are the best at it you're very good at explaining the uh, what people can infer from those and, and how to potentially take action from those models. Could you describe a little bit about the, the process you've gone through in terms of describing models and the, the results and how to actually use those results in an outbreak? Yeah, I think it is really hard and I don't really think I have all the answers, but I, I do try hard to make, uh, make clear and understandable statements that are also the best summary of what I believe to be true. Um, I think 
one thing that's important to keep in mind is that although the underlying math can be complicated and the underlying computation can be complicated, essentially everything we do, I mean, there's not, this is not like quantum physics that's outside of normal experience. It's people bumping into other people in some kind of contact. One of them's infected, the other's susceptible, and they transmit. Um, this is something we can all sort of understand. And although there's some sort of pride among modelers in thinking up results that are not intuitive, what's really, what's really makes us proud is when we can take something that seems surprising and unintuitive and explain in a simple way why that's true or why that may be true. And so I think instead of, um, instead of trying to celebrate the complexity, we should try to boil down everything we do, not oversimplifying it, but just what, is the, what are the assumptions and what are the conclusions and why might it be wrong? Um, because all models are, uh, are simplifications and, and requ require some assumptions which we can't be sure about. So, um, so to me, those are, the, those are the building blocks. And then, um, you know, I think the, the way things can go wrong is when uh, there's something else at work, a desire to please a, a, a funder or a policymaker who wants a certain result or a desire to be on the news with an exciting new result, or a desire to please a journal, uh, which wants you to sometimes overstate. Uh, I mean, they're both ways. They want you to overstate and overqualify everything you say. Um, so, uh, so for example, um, a, a, a model that makes strong assumptions about how effective a particular intervention is like masks, uh, and then concludes that masks could be the solution to the pandemic um, needs to be very explicit that that is on the assumption that the masks are very effective at the individual level. Um, and that's sometimes easy to hide. And then I think the last thing is, is sort of a basic premise of science that you understand the flaws in your, under, in your work better than anyone else. You should at least understand them. And we all like our own work, um, but we also all know the dirty secrets. And, and it's not dirty secrets. It's really, we all know what, what might be, make it not correct or misleading or not applicable in a certain situation. And if we're going to be doing policy work, we need to highlight that as much as possible. Um, just uh, this week, I've been in a discussion over Twitter about a a review article that we put out that was modeling inspired, though it was not a modeling review. It was about age and, and COVID transmission risk. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't agree with a lot of the discussion that has been on Twitter, but it's all been helpful in pushing us to examine our assumptions and, um, and tone down claims that are overstated and, um, and, so I think a certain, it's not humility exactly. If you have something to say, you should say it, but, but, but being open to the possibility that your uh, insights don't solve everything and, and should be delimited in what they say. And so, you know, you've seen, you've given your long trajectory in being involved in developing modeling capabilities and analytics for outbreaks, 
actually advising uh, different public health agencies on how to use and interpret and understand those results. Um, and then seeing it over a, a handful of years across a handful of outbreaks, if you were going to transform outbreak analytics or forecasting capabilities and improve our forecasting capabilities going forward, how would you do it? If you had a magic wand, what would be the things that you would focus on? I'm not sure we've discussed this in the past too. I, I think forecasting is really one of the parts that I am least enthusiastic about, especially for outbreaks where we have some control. Um, because as we've really seen dramatically, uh, and not just cross country comparisons, but you know, Arizona three weeks ago versus Arizona now, uh, and that being the end of July, um, when we're recording this, um, the, the virus responds to what we do to it. And so virus forecasting in such a situation means human behavior forecasting, which is a very different field uh, and not one that people are very good at. Um, so I guess I see it as, um, as analytics more generally. And I think the, I think we need a standing capacity within government to receive it. I think we need a standing uh, group of people in the academic and, and research sector who can interact with that. And I've said how I think that should be done, but, but there might be better models. Um, and I think we need to recruit really good people on both, as you say, the science side and the engineering side to that effort um, so that we have so that the scientists are not limited by computational uh, um, problems and and people like me who are not great computationally but are um, but are trying to build better methods um, you know can commute, collaborate with people who have complementary skills um, and at the same time the people doing the the computation are plugged into people who are asking the right questions because I think that is that is another way things can go off the rails is if people become see it as a computer science problem rather than as a, a human problem um, and then i think the 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 last piece which we've also talked about in the last few minutes is is data and the the science of understanding where data come from i mean there's no way you can escape the noticing in this pandemic that a number today from a given state or county means something completely different from that same number a week from now or a week ago because testing is changing and reporting is changing and contact tracing is changing and all sorts of things are changing and it is a separate set of skills people can acquire multiple sets but it is a separate set of skills to analyze data really well to understand the limitations and correct the data really well and to build big computational models. So I think it's really integrating those pieces that, that matters. And then to switch gears to round us out, the US response is not going well, I think it's fair to say. Do you have any high level recommendations for what we should be doing to get back on track? What kind of advice would you be giving to a decision maker asking for your guidance? Two interrelated, very high level things. One is we need an overall strategy. We need to take this seriously as a national crisis that needs a response at every level from, um, from figuring out sick leave uh, to dealing with the economic consequences to dealing with the supply chains to 
vaccine development and countermeasure development. And all of these pieces are interrelated and they all need, um, they all need a strategy from the top, which is, uh, which puts these different tactics of testing and tracing and vaccine development and other countermeasures in, in a framework of how are we going to get the job done of bringing cases down and, and keeping people safe while keeping society functioning. Um, so I think the first is there should be a, a centralized strategy approach as opposed to um, competition between states, for example. Um, and very closely related to that is that, that public health experts need to be at the fore. And that includes people who uh, have done this before, like, uh, like some of the old, old guard at the CDC that's been, uh, that was really instrumental in 2009 in the flu pandemic and really knows how to communicate and how to uh, implement and design these strategies. Um, and it also means, because the data challenges are so great right now, it also means having um, people who have analytical capacities and modeling capacities uh, working closely and, and really at the table and not, not being invited in to sort of, please give us your models and we will uh, consider how we make sense of them um, or if we choose to use them at all, uh, which is kind of the current, the current thing. It's a way of thinking, as I said before, um, and it's not the only way of thinking, uh, but it is an important contributor. So uh, it needs to be at the table of the decision making as well. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. I think that those are valuable recommendations uh, for how we might be able to manage the COVID response more effectively. Um, so what are you working on now? What, what kinds of things are taking up your day outside of COVID or, or if it's all COVID, what are, what are you working on right now? I keep trying to take a week, a week off, but it doesn't ever happen. <laughs> you and me both, brother. <laughs> um, so uh, the last week has been uh, trying to work on both a, um, a perspective piece and a, a more um, scientific review of the issues around age and school reopening, age, mm. age and COVID mm. transmission and school reopening. Um, so one is a review of how the how age affects transmission. And uh, I mean, it really is sort of the whole question is a whole course in modeling in itself and, and yeah. in the biases that can creep into to studies. Um, uh, and then uh, alongside that, a, a piece that was uh, that, that discusses the issues around school reopening specifically. Um, so that's been the most recent week, but other major activities um, have been working with a group of colleagues on, um, on the important question of who should get vaccine first if there is a uh, limited supply within a population. I think there's a, an even more difficult question. Now, why would you think that there's going to be a limited supply <laughs> of vaccines? I mean, so, uh, everything up to this point is in terms of supplies for PPE, ventilators, and <laughs> testing has gone so swimmingly well. Well, I guess you've answered it. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, that does get to the other issue, which is, which you mentioned earlier, uh, and is, uh, I think, even more complicated, the question of how to allocate vaccines yeah. between countries. Um, and I think that's, I think that's potent has the potential to be a major international disruption of, of completely agree. good relations between countries, uh, which don't need the help right now. 
It's foreseeable. These are problems we, we see on the horizon yes. And, yes. and they're working on now. Yes. It'd be great to yes. have energy around that. Yeah, yeah. No, these, these are, those are all great, great problems to be working on and uh, very keenly interested in seeing what you come up with in those. Uh, absolutely read everything that you put out because it helps me think more deeply about what's going on. So really appreciate all the effort that you're putting into this. Uh, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure as always to talk with you. Um, and thank you for taking the time to, you know, talk to us more about what you've been doing um, in your research, what you've been thinking about for COVID-19, and then also for helping us think through what are the capabilities and what are the kinds of structures we need to think about in terms of being able to transform modeling and analytics going forward. Uh, so Mark, thanks, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me and thanks for thinking through this as well because it's a big problem. I'm glad you're both on it. And Caitlin, as always, it's uh, super great to be with you. You as well. Stay cool outside. It's hot. <laughs> Seriously. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Be safe, be healthy, be kind. Thank you for listening to today's episode as a part of the Be Next Outbreak Analytics and Forecasting series. Please make sure to subscribe to the IQT podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Podbean to be kept up to date on new episodes. For more information on Be Next, visit www.bnext.org. A special thank you to Carrie Sessing and the absolutely wonderful Kristen Zender from IQT's marketing team and to our friends at HeartCast Media for serving as our recording studio. Thanks for listening and take care.